First time quite a lot of people had actually sat down a t- around a table with people from all sorts of different backgrounds on this issue. And that even for me was like, that's nuts. You know, how can you have, how can you try and create a policy making process where everyone works in their silos? Hi, my name's Dr. Rachel Steen and I'm a GP registrar working in Sheffield. Unfortunately, despite our best efforts, patients most in need don't get the best care. This problem is present and very real in the UK. I feel, with increasing challenges and changes in both our health and social care services, health inequality needs to be at the top of the agenda. Despite having had a keen interest in population health and preventative medicine throughout my training, I find tackling health inequalities often feels complex, with no obvious solutions. Throughout this podcast, I aim to simplify this. I'll be talking to some of the most experienced colleagues in the field, hoping to fuel interest, inspiration and further discussion around this challenging topic. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Finding Fair Health. Today I'm talking to Dolly Tice. There is almost too much to say about Dolly, (laughs) but I'll keep it brief for now. Dolly started on the political scene as a teenager, going on to study politics, work in Parliament and stand for Parliament in the 2017 election. She led the 50-50 Parliament's Ask Her to Stand campaign, supporting more women to stand for Parliament. I wanted to chat to Dolly today not only because of her political interests, but also I know she has a philanthropic drive too, and has done lots of work around supporting vulnerable groups, among a number of other things. Um, She is currently studying for a PhD in public health um, at the University of Cambridge, and prior to that was involved in research around childhood obesity at the Centre for Social Justice. She is also a company director of the Red Light Campaign, a group of young volunteers encouraging awareness on human trafficking. So that's just to name a few things that Dolly's been up to (laughs) over the last few years. Dolly, how do you pack that all in? (laughs) Well, I ask myself that a lot. (laughs) Um, In fact, I was talking about this the other day that I have a sort of problem with if I don't have something on at that exact minute, I will actually create something new. So I I now have to have the say no (laughs) to everything. (laughs) Otherwise, I'm never going to get anything done. But... um, yeah, I, I don't know where it came from, but it's, it's sort of answer the pants syndrome for yeah. taking things on. Yeah, okay, oh, brilliant. Um, well, so at the moment you're doing the your public health PhD. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, so, I mean, I still find it hilarious that I'm doing a PhD because, <laughs> um, I don't know, if you'd asked me three years ago if I would be in this position now, I'm not sure I would... Uh, have anticipated that but which is why it's so lovely Um, so it wasn't something I kind of aimed my entire life towards in any way shape or form it came completely organically from you know firstly getting absolutely hooked on the subject area through uh, an unexpected route um, uh, when I was at the Centre for Social Justice think tank which is Westminster based and uh, focuses predominantly on issues related to poverty hadn't done a lot in its history related specifically to health. Um, in fact, it was mainly mental health, if anything. And um, and so while I was working there, you know, I'd actually, I actually joined the organisation originally because of the work that they did on slavery. So no 
you know, direct relationship at all with the two subject areas, but it was because of the red light campaign that um, we had co-founded this sort of a charity at university that helped um, victims of human trafficking reintegrate back into society. And it was the Centre for Social Justice that actually pioneered on trafficking-related work. So I joined for that reason, and then lo and behold, uh, midway through, the CEO at the time, Baroness Philippa Stroud, um, announced that uh, she was interested in looking into the issue of, uh, of childhood obesity because of the disproportionate link between deprivation and childhood obesity and even though there's the health foundation and king's fund and all these amazing you know health focused think tanks out there already we just felt that we had this particular angle in the you know looking at it through a kind of deprivation lens that would be really interesting so they launched the piece and and literally the moment they announced it in our private you know team meeting I was like, I'm, no one is going to stop me from getting that, <laughs> getting that report position. And I want to be the lead re- researcher on it. And, you know, I, I had a kind of vaguely related background, but, you know, I, I wasn't publicly health trained, public health trained. I hadn't sort of come from a public health background at all. But um, the kind of role at the CSJ at the time in particular, I don't know whether it's necessarily changed now, but researchers, I mean, it's important for other people to know because I I didn't know this going into think tank world. I thought you had to be such an expert in your field. But a lot of people end up in areas that they may not have, you know, originally planned to be in. And the work that we did as lead researchers was more about convening experts and bringing people together. And then you essentially would be like the conductor in an orchestra and you would have your, you know, um, musicians in all sorts of different um, areas. And you would be bringing that together to make this beautiful uh, piece of work. And, um, And so actually it was quite quite helpful in a way to go into an issue like childhood obesity that's pretty controversial and you know there's huge ideological differences in the way that people talk about it think about it um as quite a naive person you know I kind of didn't I hadn't come from that background so I was neither cynical nor you know sort of thinking of something completely one track minded because of my area I was actually going into it completely open minded and um and so then once that started um I quickly knew that I wanted to go down on the um, the train, you know, academic route, and uh, and then that took me to Cambridge. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. And you, you talk about the different ideological views about obesity. Yeah. Talk me through some of those if you if you can. I know that's quite tricky. But. Yeah. Um. Well, it's my you know massive massive area of interest in in public health generally, mm. um, because I. You know, the Centre for Social Justice is sort of known to be centre-right-ish um, ideologically, which which means that it sits tends to sit on the centre-right um, uh, views, and those are often associated with you know less public, uh, less government intervention, sorry, um, and sort of greater individual liberties. That's very broad and very crude, but generally that would be a, quite a lot of people's perceptions. You know, mm-hmm. if it was um, a report conducted, I don't know, by the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, which is are equivalent but that sits on the left side of us they I think people would assume that they would be much more pro you know government intervention on things so so I already had that um, I already had that interpretation when I started my report at the Centre for Social Justice that I would be doing this from kind of an ideological perspective even though it wasn't something that I had sort of started thinking about um, in relation to public health before Um, and you know being under a conservative government uh, when I was writing the report you know has a massive impact about the language that was being used 
used at the time, you know, the criticisms that people had about the approaches and all of that sort of thing. So it then made me, you know, start thinking about um, the ideological implications and, you know, everything from individual policy levers like, you know, whether we should introduce a 9pm watershed um, on unhealthy food and drink advertised, um, you know, particularly to children, but, you know, using the 9pm watershed to um, make sure that children who may be watching programmes that aren't specifically child-related programmes don't get exposed to them, became a very ideological debate because it was, you know, to what extent should the government be, um, you know, making these decisions for us about what can and cannot be advertised, you know, or are we free, uh, should we be free to choose, um, you know, what we eat and drink and how it's exposed mm-hmm. to us and all of that sort of thing. So these sort of tensions within the public health world are so interesting about um, you know what is freedom and free choice and and how the environment around us impacts you know those choices and you will find that people get very heated about this you know whether something is fundamentally wrong or right um, based on an intervention it's usually to do with this debate around liberty individual liberty Um, and you um, you you are quite keen on the works of John Stuart Mill around that Um, yeah yeah Tell us a bit about where you sit in all of that. Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, I've I've had this chat so many times with so many different people. And no, I mean, I could talk about it till the (laughs) cows come home Um, uh, because it is genuinely fascinating. And I don't think there's a set answer about, you know, what I... What I believe in, because I tend to take as, as a pragmatic approach as I possibly can, because I, I would hate the idea of being so ideologically driven that I would be blind to new perspectives and new evidence. And I want to make sure that that is a perspective I retain for the rest of my life, because um, I do notice that a lot of people that, um, you know, don't sort of aren't open for debate around these sorts of issues tend to lead with their ideological perspective, whether that is totally pro, you know, government intervention and they don't care how much that infringes upon individual liberty or the opposite whether it is just you know saving individual liberty however one defines that till the nth degree and and John Stuart Mill is this fascinating creature um in my life because um I studied him originally for my undergraduate which was a million miles away from public health but I was reading philosophy at the time and I ended up writing my undergraduate thesis on uh, on liberty which was his considered one of his most famous works and and the essay uh, debates you know the the kind of rights of government the rights of the state to intervene on individual liberty and I kind of became fascinated with it because it does make you think about you know what what is individual liberty what what impacts your ability to make choices are you ever truly free to make your own choice because is it dictated by your genetics by your family by your upbringing by your environment by you know your your natural predispositions for what you like and dislike and all of these sorts of things so um it was just for me the most fascinating piece of literature I'd read in a very very long time and it has stayed with me and it's um funny that I should have read that you know literally years before I ended up going into public health when in when he and the debate that he was really uh exposing it was so relevant to public health now so I've sort of had have had or experienced this renewed <laughs> um reapplication of his works to my current um my current uh, PhD and 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 all the policy areas that I'm looking at now mm. so yeah it's a big question I kind of I want to you know say to anyone listening (laughs) ask yourself you know ask yourself what what um 
what it means to make a free choice and you know when and when you're making your next choice you know what are the things that have impacted that choice you know do you ever do you ever consider the role that uh, external factors play in that and I think until we start having that debate whenever we're talking about public health policy and at every level even at a clinical level I think it is critical for people um, especially sort of health professionals sitting in that clinical environment to really think about choice you know when they're giving advice who is impacting that when someone walks away from that room um, and what is impacting that and unless we really understand that it's very difficult for us to give the advice that will actually have an impact long term so yeah that's really interesting and it kind of fits into quite a um a commonly um said phrase which and um theme that i suppose we're thinking about in general practice at the moment which is sort of asking patients what's what matters to them rather than what is the matter with them. Yeah. And so almost bringing in that sense of control and sense of involvement, because I think previously this patient-doctor relationship has been, hasn't been been kind of on a plateau and hasn't mm. been a, sort of very, a sort of one-to-one relationship. So doctors have kind of been held in a bit of high esteem and actually bringing that into a more sort of mutual conversation and discussion with patients is... So it's something that we're really, really trying to aspire to. Yeah. Um, and I think that sits quite, totally. quite well with that. Well, I'd be yeah. interested almost from, because it's, uh, you know, when I spend my life now thinking about everything from a population perspective, mm. you know, I come across the clinical perspective mm. throughout the literature, but it's never, you're never sort of taught uh, as a clinician or as a medic is taught which is totally that individual perspective mm. you know when you're in a room literally in a room with someone treating someone or advising you know what what is it that you have to consider mm. and that is so different from thinking about it at a population perspective and then I guess I would throw the question back at you on on you know the idea of individual liberty within mm. those you know how much is it even in the training how much of it is in you know the way the way you're sort of brought up through the medical services to think about these sorts of elements? Well, not a huge amount, I don't think. And it's really interesting that it's something that I've started to think about more recently, Dolly, and I mm. think it's why I'm talking to you. <laughs> I found it really interesting um, sort of thinking about that and particularly thinking about behaviour change yeah. and thinking about um, things like smoking, alcohol, um, diet, exercise. When I'm speaking to patients, um, where... Where is that? Where where is that free choice? Where does that sit? And I suppose because a lot of patients come and ask, see their doctor and ask for advice, yeah. but actually um, it kind of goes back to that um, discussion between a patient, the one on one discussion where you can say, look, we're making this decision together. Is this realistic at the moment for you to stop smoking? If it's not, if there's other stuff wow. going on in your life, then this might not be a realistic goal for the moment. And actually, that's kind of where it. Where it what it comes down to realistically, um, and it may be that we need to focus on other things for the moment. Um, Dolly, in terms of that, how is what you're doing at the moment in terms of your PhD mm. sort of related to all of that and sort of the behaviour change with policy and public health yeah. sort of together? How how are you doing that? So. Um, uh, my PhD essentially looks at uh, what influences the policy making process mm. at a kind of national and local government um, perspective and uh, that includes who is most influential um, what ideas propositions are put forward that are most influential, um, what ideological arguments are most influential and what evidence um, is most influential and why 
And and then the kind of big how questions related to that of how do people become influential and how does evidence become um, influential? And, and really this comes from um, the there's a kind of broad area within the academic literature on evidence-based policy and uh, and then sort of little branches off that like public health evidence-based policy, et cetera, et cetera, that's, you know, specify more in the area. And a lot of the literature has been uh, focused on the sort of barriers to and enablers of increasing evidence in policy, which is based on this sort of epistemic assumption that more evidence will automatically improve policy. And yet we don't necessarily know if that's true, because there isn't a huge amount of research that looks at policy and says, you know, if you could break down what it's made of, (laughs) if that's even possible, you know, how much sort of evidence in inverted commas, however you define it, um, how much you know anecdotal experience or surveys or whatever it is that you want to um, look at you know what the policy is based on how much of it is is evidence based and until we know that also we don't know (laughs) whether it's actually useful to uh, to sort of necessarily increase the amount of evidence and how evidence even as a word is is understood differently between policymakers and academics etc etc so um, I sort of moved away from focusing on the evidence-based aspect and just to look at empirically what the policymaking process involves and hopefully um, the better we understand that um, and I say we extremely inclusively (laughs) all of us uh, we understand the policymaking process better and you know it's considered a black box open up that black box of policymaking then hopefully we can improve it um, and we can influence it more effectively for whatever purposes uh, we we want to whether that is um, to increase academic evidence or you know practitioner uh, experiences um, or even just layperson perspectives you know any anyone should be able to understand the process so they they can be a part of it um, and it speaks a lot into I guess from a practice in a clinical perspective we talk about you know public involvement um you know how how can we get the public involved in the decisions that we make um within the public health community i'm sort of wanting to take that a step up um and how can we get us involved in all of us involved in the policy making process because ultimately it affects us (laughs) so we should be involved yeah that's so interesting and i i find it really interesting when you you were talking a little bit about um how um your obesity report was brought together by lots of different people and yeah. not necessarily sort of thinking, right, I'm going to do one piece of research here yeah. and create a document. How, how much do you think policy is that? So just bringing together lots and lots of different well, I can expertise. I can tell you my thought process at the very beginning of the report when I was sort of just going, you know, how, how are we going to approach this? Um, I basically, I got um, my former boss from when I was a researcher in Parliament, mm. uh, Baroness Anne Jenkins, uh, convinced her um, I think by lying to her that she would not have to do very much and, <laughs> and uh, you know it was just a sort of name on a piece of paper and uh, uh, she then signed up and became chair of my report um, but it's amazing because she's still continuing the work today so um, it was worth <laughs> tracking her on board but it was an area that she was particularly interested <laughs> in and um um, and again, as, as kind of new to the issue areas, I was, again, not trained in any way, shape or form. But um, what she knows um, better than almost anyone uh, I know is how to really get an issue up the political agenda. 
and to get you know policymakers at the very very highest level to engage and listen and for me knowing that there were already so many obesity related reports published and you know evidence coming out our ears we didn't necessarily need another report that was going to do that and just present the evidence and present um you know the case for for uh, t- doing something about childhood obesity we wanted to have a kind of weapon in which we could actually use it to get this so high on the political agenda that it was something policymakers couldn't ignore anymore and to really have something to create urgency around the issue um so and we were very fortunate because you know, again, we had huge decisions to be made about, you know, whether we focus on a particular area, because it's obviously you could look at so many different um, parts of uh, that are related to obesity, whether it's even just making it the difference between do we just focus on diet or just focus on physical activity, even that's a decision. But within that, you've got countless mm-hmm. areas to look at local authorities and schools, parents, you know the food and drinks industry, you name it. Um, so we decided to just look at it all, obviously, because that's <laughs> when you can't, can't decide, just pick it all. Um, and uh, and we came about halfway through the, uh, the year. One of my working group members, Professor John Wass, who's an endocrinologist at Oxford, um, uh, who has done lots, uh, is very much active in, in the Obesity Health Alliance, which is a kind of campaign advocacy organisation, which I implore people to go and uh, get involved in because they're brilliant. Um, and he had come across this jump-in programme that was a Amsterdam, I think it might have been a Netherlands-wide programme in schools delivering kind of physical activity. And I looked into that and then it brought me to the Amsterdam Healthy Weight Programme, which was, um, which is a superb sort of whole systems approach programme being delivered in Amsterdam that was introduced by the sort of deputy mayor in about 2012-13. And the idea was um, to introduce a kind of whole systems, you know, sector wide across every possible area you could possibly think of uh, programme to really help kids become healthier. And it had two focuses, which I think are critical to think about, again, in relation to obesity and public health. It not only sought to prevent future generations from becoming um, obese or overweight, it, it, helped, it sought to tackle currently obese and overweight children and that distinction is often lost in a lot of the policies and and conversations had about obesity because um you know even public health approaches may help tackle um you know future generations or prevent future generations from becoming obese but they may not necessarily be very effective at treating you know uh, children who are currently oh, obese. obese yeah and he the mayor at the time, he's now a senator delivering um, obesity policy at the national level, which is amazing. But the mayor at the time, um, Eric Vanderberg, really got this and understood that it, you know, we had to kind of focus on these angles from two uh, two main, you know, targeted approaches. And so that became the kind of focus of my report as a case study. And uh, and I'd understood that because a previous case study um, used at the Centre for Social Justice on homelessness, which was the housing first model which was something being delivered in Finland it was the way the secretary of the state uh, secretary of state at the time for communities um Sajid Javid where was at the time the way he responded to a case study than just a report about the issue was so interesting I kind of this is totally anecdotal but it felt like because it was a case study and a particularly an international case study of what works which was massive under Tony Blair this idea of what works um 
it brought it sort of brought his attention quicker than it would do if we had just published a report on on you know homelessness issue generally and so it worked again you know we kind of by having this amazing international case study it seemed to really appeal to policymakers so um i don't know whether it's something that works every time but i from my experience case studies are very helpful at getting people to really envision what could be and uh, and I think in public health, we can often be criticised for being a kind of ban this, ban that world. And um, to have these wonderful positive case studies of what can be and visions of society are really helpful with making the positive case rather than just being sounding like we're sort of taking away all the treats from everyone, which, um, you know, is something we need to sort of um, we need to work on that that image, that perspective, because, you know, the sort of term nanny state is used so often in the public health world. And actually, you know, if you have a have a benevolent government of some sort or authority helping to create this wonderful world in which it's easier and normal and lovely, enjoyable to be healthier, uh, not sort of just boring and um, having to eat, you know, disgusting food, (laughs) then, um, you know, that's a good role for government to play. And uh, and yet that perspective is, again, not often um, pushed forward. So it really helped having this international case study for showing that, demonstrating that it can be positive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really, really interesting. And I think, I suppose you're coming at your PhD now, kind of with that experience behind you. So do you, are you are you using sort of that experience to inform your PhD? I suppose you are in some ways, but is, mm. how, how are you sort of taking that further and forward to think about um, changing policy? Um, Oh, it's such a good question because you, uh, do you ever know what influences your thought process at any time? I keep trying to sort of not um, let my background be too much of a leader in my mm. PhD. So I'm really trying to kind of, you know, blank blank my mind um, and sort of think of, always every day, think about things from a completely, if you're just sitting mm. back, you know, looking at this from a human being Mm. (laughs) perspective what do you see Mm. and obviously being you know equipped with um you know doing the kind of enfil here and and uh in epidemiology and public health was essential to actually understand the methods and approach and and Mm -hmm. you know context um and obviously my political background before is helpful to understand you know the terminology the people the how it works and all of that side of things but really with my PhD I'm just trying to um, think about it from as neutral perspective as I possibly can which is obviously a very tricky thing because everyone has kind of underlying biases and stuff but just to even be conscious of those you know what when I interpret something why am I interpreted it like that you know to be kind of uber reflective so um, which is actually quite a different approach from I guess a lot of the uh, work that particularly the unit would uh, typically go you know and approach something by it would be uber epidemiological perspective and you know everything is sort of you just measure things and you have a set way of measuring it and then you observe it and you have your results this is because it's so it is so um it's so qualitative it's so subjective you know there are elements of it that you have to think like that um and then in a way applying i guess the um um, um, almost mixed methods approach in the sense that um, bringing as much quant as I can, quantitative approaches to my work as I possibly can to try and bring the scientific perspective mm-hmm. to something that is potentially so subjective and so um, it's so political. You know, how do you how do you measure that? How do you 
study that I think those are the sorts of questions that um, I am asking myself and trying to tackle over the PhD no that's so interesting and I'm almost pleased you've said that because in my mind it's so it's so much about conversations and it's so much about as you said before so conversations with different people hearing about case studies in Amsterdam that sort of thing which actually it does it must inform policy Mm. and I think it, I think it does. And so in, in my mind, looking at policy, it almost seems to kind of, well, sometimes it's probably not even that, but it kind of is almost evidence-informed rather than evidence-based, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's yeah. funny. I got, it was the exact question I was asked in my interview for my PhD. <laughs> was like, how, do you, how would you distinguish between, you know... Um, Bring it all back, sorry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was actually a very enjoyable interview. So <laughs> I can thank my wonderful colleagues for that. Um, uh, but yeah, it's a really good question because... And also, what is evidence? You know, that I think that was why I originally moved away because right at the beginning, and it just shows when I even think back to when I started... You know, I, I was sort of so, it was almost something new to me, this idea of kind of evidence-based policy, you know, the whole new field and you start reading into it and you don't realise it's this thing, this beast. Um, and actually, the more you dig into it, you know, you find that even the concept of evidence, I started to question, you know, do we share an idea of what evidence is? And when I say we, I mean literally across all uh, parts of uh, the policy making process and it turns out we don't you know and so then how do you talk about evidence based or evidence informed policy when people have different ideas of what evidence is and you know there's such a kind of rigid approach to what evidence is within if you're just looking in epidemiology for example and you know you've got differences between you know clinical trials to things that are less rigorous than that and um and you know that and for good reason as well it's not you can't you know run randomized control trials on absolutely everything (laughs) but um uh you know there at least you know where you stand when it comes to quality and hierarchies of of evidence and that just doesn't necessarily fit it's not possible uh, within the policy making perspective so then um i think it's important to be transparent um ultimately and at least when you know policymakers and the policy making process is transparent, we can then identify how and where and why decisions were made and based on what. Um, but it's amazing; it's remarkable how um, how little is sort of even available for us to to even have that conversation. Um, how little is published that we can see that entire process because it does go on, as you say, in conversations and behind closed doors and everything. So, um, yeah, that's a whole. There'll be a whole other challenge. The yeah, <laughs> transparency of government. It's so interesting, and there's so many. Um, um, I talk a lot about it about this with colleagues about um, sort of methods for tackling health inequalities within primary care. Yeah, and actually, there's a lot of stuff that just isn't published, and people are just doing it. Yeah, and either not evaluating it or not not publishing it and or but just sharing their case studies as you were yeah. talking about before and I find that really interesting that it doesn't necessarily have to be in a journal um to be something that's working and and is good yeah but it's it's making sure that that's sort of rigorously shown to be sort of beneficial yeah um is difficult um, really really hard well it's like well, you know with the difference with peer review that you've got you know like my mm. think tank report is not peer reviewed you know it's published by an organization and so that differs fundamentally from something that I would publish now under my PhD which you know sort of has to be peer reviewed yeah. um, so even that difference 
is interesting and I you know it's very difficult to know how much people others think about these sorts of things and and whether it even matters but um, I personally have found it a fascinating difference and it does Mm. make me think when I read something you know how how uh, well how transparent the process was you know what it's based on what were the motivations Mm. I mean obviously the crude ones or obvious ones being you know how is it funded you know these sorts of questions you know and and does that matter Uh, and when does that matter and why you know because a lot of people Mm. would have like you know completely sort of um no-go lines with certain things like having a report that's funded by industry you know but then we should be having that conversation about is it ever okay (laughs) and where and how is it ever okay and um because you know there is so much kind of overlap of all these industries that you know these blurred these sort of gray lines are the interesting parts where you you will see your differences i guess between each other uh within the sort of public health world policy making world about what is acceptable and that goes for what is acceptable evidence to use you know what is it an acceptable judgment to to go mm. forward with you know what a was an acceptable partnership to have and in what capacity with working mm. with others and these are the sorts of things that we actually discovered through the CSJ because we tried to bring together people that really reflected almost every part of the um of the sort of decision making process and that included you know charities with policymakers themselves with academics and uh, industry and um, campaigners NGOs and there were very heated and fascinating discussions had you know during our working group meetings because it was actually the first time quite a lot of people had actually sat down around a table with people from all sorts of different backgrounds on this issue and that even for me was like that's nuts you know how can you have how can you try and create a policy making process where everyone works in their silos for me that was just ludicrous so again my naivety of thinking (laughs) like what are people doing you know spending their life talking if they're an academic with only other academics um well Dolly I'm so pleased you're talking about this because I was I was going to ask you about this because I find this really interesting as well is Mm. how how do we um well you you you've been Dolly's been organizing the um uh, Big Tent Ideas Festival the last two years, which is a, um, essentially a debating festival, bringing people together to have conversations. Mm. So, with your experience with that and your CSJ stuff, how how do we bring together people who have been working in silos, who think differently, who mm. have seeing things with different lenses, talking about stuff with completely different language? How yeah. do we bring people together and help them have useful conversations? By doing it, yeah, <laughs> I think, I think, I think so, yes, genuinely that. that would be my, you know, answer. <laughs> because you know, we a lot of people are very critical about the lack of that or the lack of anything. You know, people are generally very good at being critical about what's not happening. But then you do have to ask yourself, well, who should be doing it? And are you able and in a position to do it yourself? And if so, then why aren't you? (laughs) And um, I ask myself that a lot. I guess that's where the kind of ants in the pants um, syndrome comes from. (laughs) Um, Because as a teenager, I remember at school, um, you know, I would any problem I would hear about, learn about, talk about, I just automatically thought you know well what can I do about it 
and and it was like instinctive it, you know something deeper than I could even rationalize or understand at the time and it just drove me to get involved with stuff and whether that was like charities political parties whatever I wanted I sort of was hungry for any platform in which I felt like I was doing something about it and so I kind of I guess my you know it's not possible for everyone to do everything about everything but if you are in a position to even just do something however small um however you know early in in a big process of something to do it you know if you are able to do it then just do because it is an incredibly rewarding process um and it can be on absolutely any issue and it does end up taking you into amazing worlds that you couldn't possibly imagine um and you know it's probably how i ended up here <laughs> doing what i'm doing you know it wasn't a kind of ambition set tasks from the from the get-go um but the more you get involved with different things you know the more you respond you find you respond to issues um in quite a kind of emotive way and um and you know not necessarily a completely rational way and and often that actually links back to the policy the assumptions about the policy making processes that you know it's a completely rational linear process where you define a problem or you see a problem you decide what to do about it you come up with your agreed list of actions you introduce them you evaluate them and you decide whether they should continue or you know be changed or scrapped and it's never like that because you know problems a problem for you may not be a problem for me and problems have to be framed in some sort of way and uh, it's something that again I've looked at massively here because you know you'll have people that some people obesity for them isn't a problem isn't a population health problem they don't see it they they don't view it um as a problem and it's important again for those that go, say you know to start using words same with climate change as crisis and all of these sorts of things to be very clear about where they're where that comes from and what they're basing that on and not to say that it's not but it's just that everyone has a different interpretation of what is a crisis what is a problem what is an issue what is something you know worth um uh doing something about and that's exactly what governments do you know they have to prioritize we can't tackle absolutely everything and part of that is is how a problem is defined and um and on 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 what basis and some things come out of the blue like a financial crash or you know a hurricane can come out the blue and then you suddenly have a, a resetting of of political priorities about what you know what problems are, are most pertinent at that time but for the things that are you know ongoing and and framed as such or not framed as such that's how the policy making process tends to start so it's not this kind of uber rational linear process and often you know you'll have policy makers that come uh, that come into a position with an agenda because maybe they feel very strongly about certain things but you know if you were to line up all the issues in the world and rank them which is a process that no one would be able to do but you know hypothetically if you're able to do that would you pick the areas that you focus on i've always said oh, i like asking myself that question <laughs> you know because i'm you know involved with various charities and stuff and but there are so many other charities that I could be involved in so why am I involved in the ones that I'm involved in and you know why public health rather than you know being doing a phd in defense or foreign you know affairs or whatever and i i do find that fascinating often um is something important to understand where you know where issues come from for people and when you understand that it is easier tends to be easier 
to work out what you can do about it. Um, and, and so I would, yeah, I would call on people that have a passion and, you know, natural interest in certain things to really get more involved than they necessarily would um, about it. <clears throat> you know, be part of the decision-making process, the action focus process um if they can because there's nothing like a good passion <laughs> to keep you to keep you interested in doing something to keep you motivated to do something no definitely and i'm really interested in i know we talked a bit about this at the beginning but you you had a bit of a career swerve from when you were working in the csj and very much sort of do it well you were starting to do stuff about around public health but which obviously does link to what you're doing now yeah. but moving away and thinking right I'm, I'm going to go back and do a master's I'm going to do yeah. I'm going to go and I'm going to go and study again that that is a big change in career was that based on it sounds a little bit like that was based on the fact that you were really wanting to find out where the evidence mm. lies building that store of information for yourself but also in terms of being able to influence and make a difference oh you god yeah I mean you know I just didn't feel like I had even scratched the surfaces of the, you know, I guess the training or the education um, that would equip me and enable me to really tear, you know, results in in publications to, to shreds. And I was frustrated because, you know, we had this, I had an epidemiologist on my working group um, who was UCL based and you know, she, I really liked the stuff that she was publishing, but I couldn't necessarily critique it. You know, you were sort of, I was sort of reliant on reading the results and, and that were already almost interpreted um, and the discussion, but I wasn't able to look at the raw statistics and tear them to shreds. And that frustrated me. So I was drawn to um, the masters for that reason. And, and I had uh, the amazing professor, Dame Carol Black on my working group, who um, has just uh, stood down from being principal of Newnham College, Cambridge. Um, but she also does, um, she has conducted a number of reviews, is doing one at the moment for the government, and uh, predominantly around health in the workplace. She's done lots on drugs, on alcohol addiction, and bits on obesity as well. And um, so she was on my working group, and I was just talking to her about that. I was sort of saying, it's, you know, how do I sort of get, get up to scratch with being able to really tear data to shreds? Um, and, uh, and she said, well, go and do the master's at Cambridge. And so I just applied for, you know from that I thought right I'll go off and do that you know it's a year long and and you know go back to Westminster afterwards and little did I know that it would be such a jump you know leap for in terms of education from what I had done for years I mean I literally hadn't done any maths or science since I was about 15 years old so suddenly going not only into kind of epidemiology which with a classroom full of people that had you know been keeping this stuff up um was a pretty big shock to the system but you know my gosh an achievement it felt like when I came out the other side um and you know and statistics and and all of it um but I knew within about even two weeks despite not really understanding anything that was being taught <laughs> that I wanted to stay um so uh I applied Amazing. for the PhD and just yeah and it was a really good motivation to complete you know not just complete but do well in my yeah. master's um because had it you know had I felt so as overwhelmed as I had and had no intentions of staying I probably would have thought you know well sod this yeah. <laughs> go go and do what I'm good at but mm. um 
but it's strengthened it's strengthened my perspective and you know mm. introduced me to a whole new perspective I feel sort of equipped you know to look at things that are completely in the way that I intended to do the masters for you know mm. that was the original ambition so um but I have to say that colleagues here at the unit were, were a massive part of why I stayed to do the PhD because I just um adored the culture mm. They're so supportive and I adored the conversations, you know, they were kind of fascinated by the background I had and I was fascinated by their background. And so we have uh, continued to have amazing conversations about all of this kind of stuff on like a daily basis. So um, and my supervisor gives me um, so much freedom and support to kind of, you know, put forward ideas and discuss things and, you know, go down certain routes, explore, research various different things. And it just feels luxurious you know <laughs> couldn't imagine going back to kind of a you know your normal nine-to-five job um so mm-hmm. it's heaven really mm. oh well it sounds amazing dolly so i i i i don't want to keep you all day um but um i want to just talk to you a little bit about politics yes um, this is not my area of expertise <laughs> it's everyone's but, we're all affected uh, we are all affected but yeah um so I know you got involved in um, politics as a teenager. What was the dream? Was it prime minister? Was it what was it? <laughs> it's funny. Everyone assumes if you're politically active that you sort of want to be an MP. <laughs> and obviously, I stood, which makes me seem even more like I want to be an MP. I actually stood because I was, you know, encouraging other women to stand, you know, with through fifty fifty Parliament. And, and suddenly, all these people started going, "Well, if you're telling other people to stand, why don't you?" <laughs> so I thought, good question. <laughs> I should probably, you know, have a taste of my mm. own medicine. <laughs> I go and stand so it wasn't actually with the ambition of really wanting only to be an MP and that's it um you know I I I really believe that it's important to for the for the political world especially electoral politics for everyone to feel like they can stand um because even if they're representing a party that has a really low chance of winning which was totally the case in my <laughs> when I stood in 2017 there was you know it would have been an absolute miracle for me to win but um it's still an important platform to raise issues and to hold other people to account and you're you know you're going to have someone win who's going to end up in parliament uh, standing directly against you and you've got countless hustings and an entire campaign you know to run where you can hold that person to account and and raise issues that they could then take forward so I viewed it very much as a collaborative process and rather than standing against you know it was my chance if I'm going to lose then we should work together on um on raising issues that are important and that I hadn't felt that that was an approach I'd heard taken before and yet I really didn't understand why it wasn't you know if we're all going to be living here together whether it's in the constituency or on this you know in this country on this planet (laughs) then whatever scale you're looking at this from then we should be working together and so yeah I kind of have spent the vast majority of my of my kind of politically active working life working cross-party because I just don't see where tribalism gets us in terms of actually solving problems um you know we we do have to work together even if we have totally different approaches there are things that we can learn from each other and uh, or we can challenge each other on um so uh, and i guess that's an important thing within the public health world because there are so many different sectors to navigate in solving the sorts of problems that we need to that it's sort of healthy to go 
go at it with a kind of collaborative open-minded you know work together approach uh, which very much comes from my political um, uh, political work before and I still keep up with the candidates that I stood against and we are lots of us still you know working towards things whether that's through women representation or environmental issues public health issues still very much working together on those things and and so yeah I would absolutely uh, ask you know ask everyone who even has a chance listening to this but to consider standing even for local council or you know even getting into becoming a school governor or you know another public role of some sort um, or obviously standing for parliament um, to do it you know and just to as scary as it may seem and as as little equipped as you may feel um, which, you know, women tend to be very bad at that. They tend to sort of list you all the reasons why they shouldn't do something. So we go, the 50-50 Parliament campaign was literally set up to go around telling women that they should just go for it. Um, and um, and they'll see very quickly, you know, whether they enjoy it or not, or whether they're good at it or not, or, you know, whether they want to keep going. And often, more often than not, women tend to get a real sort of... Um, real buzz and uh, and uh, ambition to do more so um yeah which is great but i i wish there were more public health people in in, in politics you know there we currently have no elected uh, politicians who come from a public health background we've got um politicians that come from a medical background you know or gps um nurses previously but no public health trained uh, politicians and in fact Julian Huppert who was uh, Dr Julian Huppert who was MP for Cambridge uh, Lib Dem MP for Cambridge um, up until 2017 I think uh, 2015 2017 um, he uh, was the only science based science trained mm-hmm. uh, formerly um, you know researcher doctor as in not saving lives um one-on-one but (laughs) through science uh mp to be elected so you know we are far behind in in having the right representation from both the public health world and and science more generally so that's so interesting dolly and um the i some one of my sort of probably misconceptions and probably um Things that thing that I think which is probably wrong is that you have to be good at debating to be a politician. Mm. Is that would you say that'd be right? I mean, obviously it helps, but you know, I think we just have these sort of grand ideas of what debating involves, and um, and it sounds more scary than it is because essentially we debate almost in every conversation we have to some extent. You know, we debate with ourselves. <laughs> You know, should I have that chocolate biscuit or not? You know, it's that kind of debate. <laughs> so um, I think it's far it's far scarier than it actually is. And um, and I think important again, what I try and do, especially through fifty fifty Parliament, and and uh, and just encouraging because it's not just women. I encourage I encourage any excellent people to to think about standing is, you know, just always look internally when you have moments of doubt about whether you're good enough or, um, you know, whether you're right for a particular role or, you know, should go for something. Just look at yourself and ask yourself what you're interested in and ask yourself when you're comfortable and what you enjoy doing and, you know, when have you challenged yourself. And and you'll find more often than not that you've just done many things that you didn't expect yourself to do and you're passionate about certain things that other people may not know about. And, you know, all of that everyone has something to bring to 
um, the you know political world, policy making world, and even if it's really small or really narrow, it is important to still bring it. And uh, the more we can kind of open it up and support each other for bringing whatever they can bring to it, um, I think the more open it will be as a world for everyone to get involved in. Um, so yeah, I'm asking you now, <laughs> Rachel, though you must stand. Um, <laughs> Next but election. I feel inspired. Every time I've spoken to you recently, Dolly, I feel very inspired by this. So I'll take that away and think about it. Next MP for so and so. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would need to decide which party I was going to represent. Which um... go as an independent. <laughs> it's all possible. Um, I, I really like the idea that you're saying that you're working sort of cross party. Um, and I, I think that's really interesting because um, it's something that I struggle with. And I. I know that a lot of listeners will listening to this are going to be quite lefty. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a bit of a perception that conservatives don't really care much about the poor. Yeah. And, I, I, um, I'm well aware of that. <laughs> conservatives don't care about the NHS. Yeah. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, I, I you know joined the Conservative Party at a weirdly young age but you know coming from a totally non-conservative family so and a non-conservative school I mean such a non-conservative school I can't even tell you um I had all sorts of things graffitied on my senior prefect poster (laughs) that would negative Tory related for that um so yeah I kind of have always been around um you know people very close to me who don't necessarily share the same political views um although I would argue that we share lots of similar political views we just don't say share the same um, perspective of political parties and for a number of reasons that's a much wider conversation but in relation to NHS health related issues public health etc etc it's absolutely true that there is a difference in the perception of you know political parties and their approaches to these sorts of problems Um, but it's funny because it you know I Going back, I look at the history and think, well, why does no one talk about the fact that Disraeli introduced, you know, Public Health Act 1875 and Lord Walton introduced um, a lot of amazing, well, can, can be considered in extreme circumstances in, in World War II, a lot of the um, public health approaches to rationing and took, you know, his language over that time was very much a public health approach to it. Um, and even, you know, uh, Lord Salisbury, who was Prime Minister at the turn of the um, century, uh, he, just after the Second Boer War, introduced the uh, Committee on, on Physical Deterioration, you know, after they can literally couldn't recruit enough um, men who were in a physical state for uh, to fight. And so they then introduced, you know, weighing and measuring in schools and free school meals and a lot of the things that we think about in terms of public health policies now. Now. They often have a long history and, um, you know, ones that were introduced under uh, non, um, you know, Labour Lib Dem governments. So we, there is a long history that I think is not necessarily representative, re- represented sort of e- equally. We're very good at representing all the times that things haven't been done so well. <laughs> so whether that was sort of, you know, Margaret Thatcher sort of slightly hiding the black report or um, on health inequalities and that sort of issue being agenda being felt like it was ignored for a substantial period of time. But then, you know, we're in a government at the moment that did introduce the childhood obesity plan. And that's obviously what I'm focused on at the moment. And it was introduced used under um, the uh, uh, Conservative government, not necessarily the coalition Coalition, government. Yeah, Yeah, so it was after that. um, It was 2016. Um, 
<coughs> and it was David Cameron who very much, you know, um, led on it and it was you know George Osborne is a conservative chancellor who introduced the sugar um the sugar tax the soft drinks industry levy so you know I kind of I'm absolutely up for criticisms but I would love the idea of looking at it completely fairly you know it would be fascinating I would dream of mine um at some point when I have a moment to breathe I want to conduct you know uh, some analysis on on what has been introduced under different governments I mean I would love to go super far back I think it would be fascinating because you can almost argue that the corn laws you know were a public health related um policy um and and split the conservative party in its in its very beginnings um and uh and look at you know literally numerically you know what what um, policies were introduced have been introduced under certain governments under different governments and what policies have been initiated because i think it's important to know that you know like seatbelt laws were often initiated they were initiated long before the conservative government came in when uh, the legislation was brought in so you you know can we can we owe that can we claim that to a conservative government or was it actually under where it was initiated and how do you trace policies back um but you know for it's in public health england wouldn't have been set up without andrew lansley you know he he set it up as far as i understand he set it up to be reflective of um, the cdc in america so he wanted something that was similar to that so we wouldn't have a public health england if it wasn't for a conservative um uh, secretary of state who's who's not exactly the <laughs> they got many fans in the <laughs> in the health world so um but it's it's important that we sort of talk about these um these things and why do we feel you know as a public health community strongly about certain parties and others and does that impact the way we engage with them because I think I would have a problem if I found out that people were less likely to engage in the first place with a particular government or local authority because of their party because in a way that would be harming you know public health policy from progressing further because of our own prejudice and I, I completely agree, Dolly, and I think that the I think it goes back to what you said earlier when you said you try and take each day where you kind of have an open mind. Yeah. Is that almost I feel like we t- we pigeonhole stuff into particular political parties and yeah. therefore close our ears off to things and therefore don't listen and don't think whether this look at a uh, look at a um, a particular policy or a particular um, yeah something being implemented at face value for what it actually is and the impact it's going to have. And if, it, if um, someone's, you know, not willing, then how can we get them to be willing <laughs> to, to, to get, you know, feel, understand why yeah. it's important to do certain things, whether it is, you know, on health inequalities or whatever. How do we get to a point where everyone understands mm-hmm. why it is important for them, for others, for, you know, wider community? And I, and I, I just don't like the idea of giving up or before one has even tried to tackle something just because, you know, the perception is they're they're not going to be receptive to it um again that would just incite me to (laughs) take on the challenge to convince them (laughs) this is something that we've definitely bonded over dolly (laughs) trying to create conversations um about these topics um um yeah without sort of putting up barriers i think as well um dolly i want to ask you two more questions so um i always finish with two questions the first is um can you recommend a book or a resource that you really really value that um over over the years that you found that maybe changed your way of thinking about something or um you'd recommend um to someone sort of starting out on their 
journey to trying to think about how to tackle health inequalities? I'd, I would have to go with On Liberty. <laughs> with John Stewart On Liberty, I mean, I, you know, too tempting not to. Um, I mean, the other one would have to be, you know, Jeffrey Rose's work, um, but I feel like that's probably a Bible for most people tackling um, health inequalities. And Katie Core, who uh, sadly retired but was in the unit here, um, also her work is amazing. Um, but yeah, I think it's interesting. It would be it's important to think about, um, you know, the big questions of to what mm-hmm. extent should you know we uh, or the government or whoever intervene. And what what are individual freedoms? Because I think they are essential to the debate around health inequality and understanding, you know, what impacts our choices and lifestyles um, really does come from that perspective. And actually, it's, you know, a lot of the work at the CSJ or the, the training, we used to joke as CSJ colleagues or f- former CSJ colleagues that it was like a mini university because you would we, you would work at the CSJ and you would come out thinking about things from a really um, sort of CSJ perspective, obviously, but um, <laughs> it was based on their idea that instead of um, measuring poverty by, you know, how much you have in the account, essentially... Um, which used to be the way that, you know, a lot of the welfare measures were, um, uh, were, you know, kind of introduced based on you could be one pound in or one pound out of poverty. Um, it would talk about more the sort of five pathways to poverty. So what experiences someone has that leads them to be in a state of entrenched poverty. So family breakdown, addiction, personal, serious personal debt, that sort of thing. And um, and so with that in mind, it was about the fact that not all problems that a person faces is based on poor choice, you know. So I was kind of trained almost through that to view uh, the world as a, a number of factors that influence, you know, why we do things and what makes us um, capable of, of doing things um, and want to do things and able and all of those sorts of questions. And I think on liberty is the kind of... I guess the foundation of thinking about you know what impacts choice and what should dictate it and who um, in very much the same way and when, and when does that stop you know if we're happy for parents to tell kids what to do when does that stop does that stop at 18 and then you know if we're not equipped <laughs> how do we define if we're not equipped to do make good choices does that mean we you know nothing else impact or should impact us going forward and if it does then what does and um, until we're aware of those it's very difficult to identify the best levers to um you know to use i guess whether it's you know everything from taxation to promotion to education information you name it you know all of these potential leaders we have around us impact what we what we end up doing in our lives um and and that is a public health perspective i think mm. So interesting, so interesting. Dolly, I could literally hear you talk about this all day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I'm going to give you your one genie wish to tackle health inequalities. What would that be? I would love the public health community to stand genuinely get elected, stand for, you know, at every point of government, local authorities up to national election. Um, Because, you know, we can shout and scream from the outside and and push forward our ideas and and evidence and work, you know, to to the inside. But 
uh, we need more people on the inside making the decisions. Um, so my genie wish is one day in my lifetime, there will be a public health trained person in the cabinet <laughs> and bringing that perspective to uh, the government at the time's work and hopefully embedding some, some truly public health perspectives into government's work. Oh, fantastic. Well, I hope that comes true and, um, and that could be you, Dolly. Um, we'll see. Watch this space. Or you, so let's take it on together. Yeah. <laughs> Watch this space. Dolly, it's been lovely talking to you today. We've talked about everything from evidence to conversations to debate to politics to, yeah, you name it. So great talking to you um, and we'll speak again soon. Thank take you. Care. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. You will be able to find further episodes on the Fair Health website. If you haven't been on there already, please do check this out at www.fairhealth.org.uk. It is a fantastic educational resource. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us. If you have ideas, would like to talk to us, or even if you have a suggestion of someone we could interview for an episode, please do get in touch via Twitter, at FairHealthUK or at RMSteam. It would be great to hear from you. I'm really looking forward to you joining us next time on our journey to finding fair health.